0: My name is Andy Dorado. This is Furthermore. We take the month's bestseller from the New York City bookstore where I work, we read the first 50 pages, and we decide, would we delve in? Or would we shelve it today? On furthermore, we discuss September's bestseller, *The Testaments* by Margaret Atwood. This came as no surprise to me at the store, as I knew this would be the biggest release of the fall season. My guest, Emma Calabrese, Reese's cousin and well, my cousin by marriage, talk Margaret Atwood. We joined the debate as to whether or not *Handmaid's Tale* is science fiction or speculative fiction, and we talk sequels. They're impossible to escape nowadays, along with a constant stream of nostalgia. Was Margaret Atwood's book just another victim of 2019 sequelitis? Or was it something she really wanted to write? Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Furthermore. My name is Andy, and today I am joined by a very special guest. I'm joined by Emma. Emma, what is your last name?
1: Hi, Emma
0: Calabrese. Calabrese. I've got back-to-back Calabrese guests, if you count, Risa. As of recording this, I am editing the episode for Risa and I to, uh, that we just did to go up on Monday, so we've got back-to-back Calabrese's. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> and Emma, you are coming to us live over the phone from Tallahassee, Florida?
1: From Tallahassee, Florida.
0: <laughs> yes. So, all right, give, give me a little bit about yourself. A
1: little bit about me. I am... I'm currently in graduate school um, at Florida State University, getting my MFA in theater management, yay theater, (laughs) Uh, but uh, I, in undergrad, was a double major in theater and English, and so I also am a big book person. Uh, You guys can't see us because it's a podcast, but Andy can see. I have a wall of
0: books. It is beautiful.
1: In my office, it's a wall of books. It is. about a lot of books. yes
0: which is definitely why i wanted to have you on risa and i were talking about you know when we were talking about doing a, a podcast she was like oh my gosh you have to have emma on i was like yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> so so emma and i are today we're talking uh the testaments by margaret atwood which was unsurprisingly september's bestseller at the store um but, yeah, Emma and I have long bonded over books, and Emma, you are you are Reese's cousin, so um, yeah. Reese's mom and Emma's dad are brother and sister, so for anybody out there <laughs> wondering <laughs> how, how we know each other. And, yeah, I mean, you you got a whole a, a, a good book family there. Everybody reads books. I have a good book family. Yeah. My mom is a professor of literature and English, uh, so we had books in our hands. From the time we were small, small. Yes. So, and yeah. actually, are you named your Emma because of the book, Emma, right?
1: Jane Austen. Um, yes. Yeah, so all the kids in my family, by both my brothers and me, were all named after Jane Austen characters. Uh, so Emma, obviously, for the book, Emma. And then my middle name is Jane for the character nice. in Pride and Prejudice and for Jane Austen herself.
0: There you go. I think my parents named me Andy because they thought I was going to be a girl and they didn't. <laughs> have a boy name picked out so they're like uh ah, oh, sure andy cool whatever okay so let's get into some questions then emma that i always ask my podcast guests as i open up my book okay so let's start with the hard one do you have a favorite book
1: oh god um no <laughs> i got many to have like an ultimate favorite but i do have to say if you ask me a top five handmaid's tale is in it okay uh, i have a lot of feelings about
0: the testament not all good interesting <laughs> okay so um then give me the last what like what book have you read this year that you really really loved let's go for that
1: Ooh, this year all right i'm looking over at my wall what a dust street well, I just read one um, by Leigh Bardugo. She's a YA author, but she just wrote her first adult book called Night House. Yeah. And I wasn't expecting a lot from it, but
0: I loved it. Yeah. It a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I think Jess and I touched on that. We did an episode um, where we read a YA book, and I think we, we mentioned her, if not if not touched on it. I've heard good things. The reviews have been positive for that one so far.
1: Yeah. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun. I kind of picked it up because, uh, Stephen King gave a really good review of it, and I tend to trust him
0: about spooky things. There you go. Oh, Stephen King. Oh, I'm
1: trying to think if there's another one that was really good. Oh, well, in a totally different vein, I read uh, Master and Margarita this year. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's been on my to read list. Like, you know, as long as I've worked in bookstores, I remember picking that up, you know, at my first bookstore job and being like, this sounds interesting. And I just somehow have never gotten to read it.
1: It's a wild ride if you <laughs> want to know about Russia and the devil and talking cats. I don't know.
0: It's a good time. Two out of the three I'm interested in, and I won't tell you the two out of the three, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have a genre that you usually stick to, Emma?
1: Mm, um, I dabble, but I think my favorite
0: genre of the last couple of years has been sci-fi fantasy. Yeah.
1: But I will read anything. Yes. Anything
0: you <laughs> <mean>. <laughs> I... Does your mom approve of these things? I feel like whenever I see you both, you're like, I'm reading this, and she kind of gives you a small sigh. <laughs> She's so disappointed. <laughs> she couldn't be more upset that my bookshelves are dominated now by sci-fi and fantasy books.
1: <laughs> um, but I have a lot of the classics, too, and I've read most of the classics. Mm-hmm. Like I just did a whole like Dickens kick. Um, nice. And uh, I just did all of, like, read a lot of Nietzsche recently. You Ooh. know, that's what it does. Yeah. So I don't read just to that, but she gets very upset. She she doesn't like Harry Potter, which yeah. is a
0: constant <laughs> point of struggle with us. Yeah. Oh. Do, do you feel like you've had time to read um, in grad school? No. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. I've kind of, like, forced it
1: into my schedule. Yeah. Um, but I'm definitely reading more books for school that are, like, less, like, what I would pick. Right. Just, like, books leadership and stuff like that right so I just read a really good one um by Brene Brown um oh. yeah that
0: was good. I'm yeah. pretty certain Risa used uh a Brene Brown oh boy I'll have to double check with her on this I'm pretty certain she used a Brene Brown in her thesis for grad school yeah so.
1: she's very inspiring she is a shame researcher
0: so yeah Yeah.
1: It was interesting
0: stuff, and it was a, it was good for the class. Yeah, you know, I was in a funny situation because I did the you know creative writing major, so I did find I had a lot of time to read, but still, it wasn't you know my pleasure reading. It was still stuff for class that I was sort of forced to read sometimes. <laughs> so yeah, you know, I look back on that and I'm like, I was reading a lot, and then I I literally have all the books that I read for grad school like behind my computer that I'm recording here, and I look at a lot of these and I'm like, I didn't like those, <laughs> so
1: <laughs> not a fan. Yeah. yeah.
0: Did you have a favorite book as a kid? Ooh,
1: um, I guess it depends on, depends on what age you would get me at. Mm. As like a young kid, my favorite was um, Half Magic. Ooh, yeah. I, oh, is that, is that, uh, not e. Nesbit? Um, Edward Eager, is that who wrote I Half th-
0: Magic? I think so, yes.
1: I think it's Edward Eager. So that was my favorite book as a very young child. Yeah. And I really like all of his books because they were like, it's magic, but you have to be very specific with it. They're just very interesting. So, like, in half magic, they can wish for something, but it only gives them half of what they wish for. Right. So you have to wish for twice as much. Um, and then I loved Alice in Wonderland. And yeah. then I was a big Harry Potter fan yep. as I got older.
0: So you were... How old were you when, that, when the first Harry Potter came out?
1: Eight? Nine? Okay. I was, like, right in the sweet spot Right. For the
0: first one. Yeah. I was always the same age that harry i feel like by the time the last few books were coming out like i was 17 when the seventh book came out i was 17 gonna be 18 that fall so i always felt like i was like sort of the same age as harry on that journey and then i learned later that it was you know 1997 and not 2007 that things were happening in or wherever it was supposed to be i was like oh oh yeah
1: the funniest things about that series, I did not put together
0: that it wasn't like jumping to the year that the book came out. It's yeah. Like, in my mind, I was like, when that book ended, it was 2007. No, not the case. <laughs> yep. Yeah, my favorite thing about Harry Potter for when I was young was I didn't realize I was young enough that I didn't really know sort of the ins and outs of a British accent. And I remember reading, and they'd say things like, you know, I oh, I reckon that's the case, Harry, and I thought they were from the south. <laughs> I was like, why do they say reckon? Is Is Ron Weasley from the South? And I was like, wait, I don't know where this is supposed to be. I was very I was probably like 10 and I was like,
1: what? Where is this bet? (laughs) I also had to like had to have like a personal like reckoning because I realized from a very early age
0: that I was Slytherin and like it took a lot of emotional acceptance to get get to the point where I'm now proud. Interesting. Did I tell you, did Risa tell you that yeah, you know, I never really knew what house I was in and Reese always sort of felt the same. And I always thought, you know what? I think I'd probably be a Ravenclaw. And she always was like, I'm definitely a Hufflepuff. If I really had to think about it. And then we took the Pottermore quiz and reverse. I'm a Hufflepuff. <laughs> she's a Ravenclaw. I thought that was funny.
1: I, but I can see both of those for you guys. Yeah. Like, that yeah. could be Ravenpuff.
0: Ravenpuff. <laughs> I'm just looking- in on Slytherin. We're just locked in at this point. She's a Ravenpuff. I'm a Huffleclaw. You're a Huffleclaw, yeah. <laughs> how long do you think it usually takes you to read a book, Emma?
1: Oh, it depends. I'm a pretty quick reader. Hmm. I could get through... What's, how long is the Testament? Let me see. Let me see what how long this one would take me. Yeah. Uh, it's about 400 pages. I could get through that in about a day. Wow. If I to it. Yeah. I could do like a hundred pages in an hour and 15 minutes or an hour. Yeah.
0: I don't think, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. I just, the idea of finishing a book in a day, I don't want that because I want to sit and enjoy it. But I know a lot of people that are just like, nope, I just want to, I want to do this. Let's do it. Strap me in.
1: Yeah. I also, there's like something to be sad about taking a little bit longer because like one I think I've noticed is that my dad, he takes like a month to read a book. And um, he can quote verbatim the whole book back to me. I can't remember the first, the last sentence. Like, yeah. Just, so he retains it a lot better than I do. Yeah. I can get a gist of the story, but I lose a lot of the specifics.
0: That's so funny. And when you read a book, how do you mark your page?
1: Bookmarks, dogging ear, is uh, death. <laughs>
0: I I don't remember who I had on where I said that they were dog earing and I was like you know did you're just a travesty to the literary community and they're like what it might have been Andrea so Andrea if you're listening sorry but I was like I just remember the page so I don't know I have no I have no skin in that fight but <laughs> if let's see do you have a guilty pleasure book this one is one that people sometimes don't have but oh well I don't know if it's so
1: much like a guilty pleasure book but I love YA yeah a genre um I read a lot of it. I think there are a lot of fun, a lot of the stories. There's a lot of good YA fantasy out there. But I guess most people would be like, oh, you're 28. What are you doing reading YA? But I'm having a good time. I just read an amazing series um, by Neil Shusterman called The Arc of the Five. Yeah. Incredible. Like, go out and read these books because, like, they're maybe for teens, but they're wonderful. They're those, so interesting.
0: I think those have won a lot of awards and stuff in the in the literary yeah. community. So.
1: They have. So, yeah, I love uh, YA books. I have, like, a whole shelf dedicated to them. If I was, like, going to go with, like, a guilty pleasure book, I'm kind of obsessed with this one BookTubers book. Ooh. <laughs> and, like, it's not good. But, like, I love this BookTuber, Christine Riccio. Riccio if anyone okay. watches YA BookTube, she wrote a book,
0: again, but better. It's not great, but I love it. Yeah. yeah there you go. Yeah. That's the way I feel about Certain movie. I don't know if I have an answer to the Guilty Pleasure book, but, you know, as long as you love it, that's 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 you know, that's what's exactly. important. <laughs> uh, okay, and so I usually ask at this point in time if you've ever read anything else by this author. So I know you've read Handmaid's Tale. Have you read other Margaret Atwood books?
1: I have. She's one of my favorite authors. Um, I've read the Mad Adam trilogy, um, if anyone's familiar. starts with Forks and Crake. Um, I've also read a few of her other books. Oh my god, now I'm blanking on its title, but the one that's about oh it's like her retelling of the test of the not the test, the test of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's you want to try that's the Penelope
0: the Penelope Ad? No, Hadseed. Oh, Padseed. oh yes, that's right. Yeah, that was part of the big Hogarth Shakespeare thing where they had a bunch of different authors retell Shakespeare stories, so there was that. I think Ann Tyler did Vinegar Girl. They got mm-hmm. Joe Nesbo to do Macbeth. And it just, it didn't seem great. The, the, the main character's wife was just named lady. And I was like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm good. I don't need to read this, Joe. Oh, (laughs) Joe. Um, but Hagspeed was a lot of fun. I have read the Penelope ad, um, as well. Uh, I love her. I'll read pretty much anything that kind of comes up. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So let's talk about her a little bit and then, and, and talk a little bit about Handmaid's Tale. So I had never read Handmaid's Tale actually. And so, you know, I knew Testaments was coming out in September and I was, I was going to be shocked if this wasn't September's bestseller. Honestly, I was like, this one is going to be huge. And actually a quick anecdote about that is that we missed our shipment from the publisher. The Tuesday that it came out, we got it on Wednesday, but that was slightly embarrassing. People kept coming in on Tuesday, and they were like, do you have it? And we were like, no, sorry, tomorrow. Oh, that was awful. You just like, we got to get this book. Yeah, I was sort of panicking. So Margaret Atwood was, she was born in Ottawa in Canada. And she was born on uh, November 18th, so again, shout out to November birthdays. Risa and I both have a birthday in November, and the last book that we talked about was Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, whose birthday is November 11th, which is also Kurt Vonnegut's birthday, so everybody's just November birthdays. It's just the way it goes. Uh, her mother was a nutritionist, and her father was an entomologist. So she said that she spent a lot of time running around in the woods outside of Quebec, which just sounds lovely to me. And I, I think. I think it really influenced a lot of like the way that she like compartmentalizes writing in a way. I think um, Ursula Le Guin, I think that she was the same where her, I think both of her parents were like scientists and she just wrote things very much like, you know, a scientific magazine or sort of thing would be. But Margaret Atwood has won all kinds of uh, awards. In fact, this book won the Booker Award this year. So this one already has been recognized and- she she was the first ever winner of the Arthur C. Clarke Award for science fiction, which is interesting to me because, and I really want your opinion on this, Emma, there is a huge debate about whether or not Handmaid's Tale is science fiction or not. What would you call it? You
1: know, I wouldn't call it science fiction. No. Um, you know, it's interesting that you brought up Ursula Le Guin yeah. because, like, me... That is science fiction. Like, Left Hand of Darkness is a wild book. Um, that, to me, is, like, full-on science fiction. The Handmaid's Tale, to me, is... I guess people want to put it there because it deals with a future post-world. But to me, it's kind of a little bit more post-apocalyptic yeah. versus um, sci-fi. Like, I wouldn't categorize The Hunger Games as sci-fi. Right. But, like, they're in a similar genre to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the the distinction for me personally, I feel like lies in, um, you know, science fiction to me, I think has to have some sort of technology beyond our bounds. So I think yeah. of space things as science fiction or things with, you know, robots or automatons or something like that. And, but, you know, but she so she won for Handmaid's Tale. She won the Arthur C. Clark Award for science fiction. And I think that Margaret Atwood has always sort of resisted the idea that that book is science fiction she, she would I think she would say that it's speculative fiction which is you know another genre that, that people tend to use but I remember I had two co-workers at the store and one of them always wanted to put it in science fiction and the other one was like no it's she doesn't want it to be science fiction let's not put it there and I just think that's really interesting because I feel like when she wrote it in, in you know in 1985 that the genre in and of itself is sort of it was like back then. Well, like where else would you put something that's post-apocalyptic? But yeah. now I think there's the the genre has expanded so much that that it would be hard for me to to call it that.
1: I I totally agree. I think it's more in the speculative fiction um genre. And like I've also read articles where she's just like it's not quite. And I also think it um kind of undermines her larger point with the book, which yeah. is that this is not science fiction, this could happen. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, a lot of what she's trying to say is, like, we've got to watch out because, like, we're headed this way. Yeah.
0: The you know? the version, the Handmaid's Tale that I read was the one that they republished in 2017, and it has an updated forward from her. And I found it really interesting what she was talking about. I mean, because so much of Handmaid's Tale, there are so many little things that feel very relevant to today. But she was talking about some of the, the genesis for it being <laughs> – I can't remember if she said she had friends in East Berlin or she was doing some work or something there. And a lot of it was this, like, you know, when she looked at the Middle East in the 80s and, and communism and sort of the, like, way information is given behind the steel curtain was it was a big genesis for it. And she does. She describes the book as an, as an it-can't-happen-here tale. And, you know, she was like, I was just taking the sort of – Casual attitudes towards women at the time and pushing them to their extreme. So, the sort of like casual idea that, like, you know, some people, and I mean, some people still do feel this way, but people there maybe were more, you know, in, in the Middle East and in these, in, in under communism felt like women are only, they really should only be around to have babies. And it was sort of this casual, like, well, I just think that women are only good for having babies. But yeah. the way, you know, America was set up and the way the world is set up is, you know, it's not like you can make them only have babies so she was taking this idea of this casual attitude of like that's what they're for and pushing it to its extreme yeah exactly so i know i think that's just fascinating that that whole debate the Handmaid sale obviously it was made into a show uh, a couple of years ago i think 2017 have you watched it
1: i have not okay. and uh, i do not plan to Interesting. and that kind of ties into my and we'll get to it when we get to the actual testament part of this podcast yeah Uh, I, the reason I don't want to watch the show is the same reason I didn't want this book. Um, and we can talk
0: about that more later, but yeah, yeah, no, I haven't seen the show. Yeah, I haven't either. I I feel like I want to do a a furthermore episode about like, you know, do the head to head thing. Like, what would you rather keep going with the book or the, or the show for that? But did you know that the Handmaid's Tale was made into a movie in 1990?
1: I did. I knew that that movie existed. Um, but I have never seen it. I heard that they changed the ending. Or no, it stopped. It stops in, like, a different spot, I think. I don't know. I don't know a ton about it. Again, I read this book for the first time, The Handmaid's Tale, when I was 13. Yeah. And have read it many times since then. Yeah. So it, it's been, like, a huge shaping factor for me and, like, how I express feminism and how, like, I talk about women's rights and stuff like that. So it meant a lot to me. So I didn't seek out additional media because I liked my vision.
0: Yeah, but my favorite part about this movie, do you know who wrote the screenplay to the 1990 movie? I have no clue. Harold Pinter. What? Yeah. (laughs) No. What a wild. That was I, I was, I looked that up and I was, I think I called Risa from the other room. I was like, wait a minute, Harold Pinter wrote a handmade sale movie in 1990. Too funny. Uh, He's a wild right? Yeah. I can't remember. I think Risa and I saw, um, when, uh, Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart, they would do the, I think they would do the Beckett Pinter trade-off every other night. I'm pretty certain yeah. we saw the, we saw Pinter, we saw No Man's Land, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I just thought that was hilarious. Now. So, so yeah, I, I, when I, when I was thinking about Testaments and I, I think I said to Risa, you know, I'm pretty certain that's going to be the bestseller. And I I thought to myself, D- can I realistically talk about that book without reading Handmaid's Tale? And I gauged Risa's opinion and she said, you can't not read Handmaid's Tale if you're going to talk about it. Don't be an asshole. So I was not an asshole. I read Handmaid's Tale. I actually had to put it down halfway through because it was just so upsetting. Yeah. Like, a lot. I, had to, I had to kind of put it down for a little bit and read something else, and, and I came back to it. And I'm very, very glad I finished it, but I think that a big part of Testaments, I have a feeling just from talking to you a little bit so far, that you sort of feel the same way I feel with the Testaments. And I didn't actually look this up. I, I feel like I should have. But I, I, I'm going to just give some insight just as a, a bookseller and a reader. My feeling on this book is that Margaret Atwood, I know she wrote the the TV show that came out. I know that they, they got her for that. And my feeling on that was I heard that the first season of that show is the whole book. And so yeah. they said, well, we want to keep going. She said, fine. So she wrote more. And I think her publisher got on the phone and called her and said, you're doing what for TV? No, you've got to write us the book version of this. Like everybody's going back and, and redoing thing. Every, you know, people are going back. It's Suzanne Collins is writing another hunger games thing. You got to go back and do it for us. So I think that Testaments is born more of the TV show than of Margaret Atwood wanting to go back to this story.
1: I 100% agree. Um, and I am very against this trend that seems to be, like, pervasive now in writing for authors to go back to stories that are finished to give more because they that's what readers want to read instead of, like, creating, you know, new worlds. So, like, everyone gives J.K. Rowling so much shit for not writing more Harry Potter, but I'm like, great, it's done, Yeah, write something else. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't need people to go back and add to a story that's finished. So that was part of my feelings about *Testament* yeah. as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, you know, if you're out there listening and you're wondering, like, okay, really, Andy? Like, what are you talking about? I mean, I feel like this is a big trend in a lot of things. And I'll start with just, like, think about Star Wars. You know, they they sold that to Disney and they're like, cool, we're going to add more onto this. And, you know, maybe I think George Lucas had a script and ideas, but he hadn't done it. So there's a lot of this sort of cashing in on nostalgia that's happening and the most recent one in the book world i can think of besides this is uh philip pullman is going back and and adding more to the golden compass trilogy i think it's the prequel i think they're prequels and i've read both
1: of them that have come out um yeah i'm a philip pullman fan yeah so the first one is a prequel the second one is actually a sequel um, of the new series that he's writing. Right. The second book takes place when Lyra is, like, 20. So oh. after the end of the Golden Compass trilogy, the second book picks up. Right. Um, mm-hmm.
0: And I don't always think it's bad. I mean, when the new Star Wars came out, I thought to myself, I really don't care what happens afterward, but I'm going to see it. And then I've enjoyed them. So I'm not always against this. But I do agree that sometimes... A story feels finished, and especially for something that came out in 1985. Like, I I absolutely understand that, like, parts of Handmaid's Tale feel more relevant now in our current political climate than they have in the last 30 years. But at the same time, I feel like Margaret Atwood would have written more if she wanted to. I mean, she's written so many other books since then. Like, she would have given more to Handmaid's Tale if she really wanted to. So part of it feels like it's just, like, needling for TV.
1: That is 100% what I've, like, tried to say to people when they were like, because I have to be honest, I was not going to read the Testament. Then you called me and we're doing this, so I have not picked it up, um, and I will probably finish it. But yeah. I was not going to read it because, for me, the ending of The Handmaid's Tale is perfect. Yeah. I love the ending. I know some it drives some people wild because they, they need closure and spoilers out there for The Handmaid's Tale. Right. It ends on a very uncertain note. You don't know what's become of Alfred. You don't know if the eyes are the good guys or the bad guys um, and where they've taken her. But I think that's right for the story that's being told because like there is no certainty in her world. Like all she can do is take the next step and see what happens. Yeah. So for me, there was a reason she left it like that and there was a reason she hasn't written a sequel. And then like all of a sudden we get a sequel no. It's yeah. tied to the show. It's yeah. tied to pressure from publishers. I don't think she would have written this book if the show wasn't as popular as it is.
0: Right. And I think, I mean, I think that that was relatively spoiler-free for Handmaid's Tale. I, I <laughs> think, hopefully, you know, people out there listening to this, if you haven't read it, I you know, I won't try to give away too many spoilers, but it does very much end on an uncertain note that you don't know what the character you you really honestly you don't know what happens to the character i was fascinated and i really like the last chapter of handmaid's tale is sort of it's in the future later people discussing you know the main character that we just spent the whole book with and even there they're saying we don't really know what happened to her we have you know these these tapes from her that she recorded this onto and we still kind of look back and we don't know quite how she did it or why. And that was that was a really great ending for it. So to step back into this world, and I wanna get into these first fifty pages here, but I started reading this with with the question on my mind too, of do I want to go back to this world? Do I wanna go back to Gilead? And like I said, I, I had to put it down for a little bit because it was it was a tough read for me because in a way that is, you know, supposed to be tough. But I I did sort of have to stop and say, okay, do I really want to go back into this world and go back into this this stress that this book you know sort of put on me? But all right, so let's get into this. So so the the first chapter begins uh, with one of the ants from The Handmaid's Tale, and I'll try to put in little details of stuff in case you haven't read Handmaid's Tale and you're curious about this one. The ants are sort of the the people in society that. Well, actually, I've talked too much. Emma, will you explain the ants to us?
1: <laughs> so, the ants are the... They convert people right. to a lot of this. They're the, they destroy the Pearl Girls, who are the missionaries of this world. Um, they're also the ones in the re-education centers. Yes. As women are brought in, they convert them to the way of thinking of this new regime. They're kind of the, that moral, like, this is the morality of this world, um, and they serve in households to kind of function that same way, to keep everyone in track, to keep the Handmaids and the Marthas, like, all doing what they're supposed to do and fulfilling the rules they're obligated to. Right. I think that's kind of the best summary of that. Yeah.
0: The, the, the most famous aunt from Handmaid's Tale is a woman named Aunt Lydia, who ran The main character Alfred. she ran her re-education center so oftentimes when she thinks back on on her time at the re-education center aunt lydia is sort of the the focal point of that you know the main character of that thing and we actually come to learn that this first chapter is from aunt lydia's point of view and so she's sort of recounting her story a little bit how she's able to sort of steal away and go to this library where she has some privacy to write her story. And in this world, women are not allowed to write. So this is very much a privilege for her. we come to learn later that she's kind of doing it in secret. Uh, But I was was actually shocked and sort of intrigued that we didn't start with Offred, to be honest with you.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I was shocked, but also pleased. Because again, I don't... I mean, we know what becomes of her. Like this book, it tells us. But I don't want... Awkward. Yeah. I wanted if I had to read this book, I wanted something new, and I thought Lydia was a really interesting character to start with, um, because she's such a villain of the first book, right? In days, yeah. You know. Yeah. Um. So it was an, it was an interesting start.
0: Yeah. So we then move to uh, a different. You know, it, it's very much divided too into these these uh, different character sections. So we moved to a new character, a young girl who grows up in Gilead. So in sort of the, it's supposed to be Gilead, the the center and where Alfred was, was supposed to be Cambridge, right? She's supposed to be sort of where Harvard was. And, you know, she talks often about the university buildings being, you know, repurposed and used for stuff. So in New England, in Boston, uh, but also this, this chapter begins with witness testimony 369A. So much like Handmaid's Tale, we are being given this information from a later vantage point. And looking back. And the narrator often says things. She'll be speaking about something and says, you might know what's coming next. I didn't as a young girl, but of course, here's how it happens." So she's very much looking back and giving you from something in the future. We come to learn her name is Agnes. She's the daughter of a commander who's one of the high-ranking you know, officials in this society. And a mother who we come to learn is very sick. And she also has two aunts in school. And they sort of play off each other a little more one is nice one is a little more strict but it's nice to see ants that aren't sort of a villain honestly no. mm-hmm. i think she has three i think
1: there's three
0: aunts. Oh yeah they yeah. all have very interesting names <laughs> so she's told off and uh, her mother tells her a story about how when she was young her mother picked her up from a forest and she was locked inside a castle it's, it's very sweet and we get a lot of scenes with her mother Her father, whose name is Kyle, is barely in it. He doesn't seem to care about her at all. And she lives sort of a privileged life. She's at this school where everybody else, she says everybody else at school is also the daughter of a commander, but one girl who's the daughter of a dentist who is the dentist for everybody. So she sort of gets to go to school with everybody else. He's the best dentist. Yeah, which I thought was really funny. And here again is where I I stopped and paused myself, and I thought – Again, really smart move on Margaret Atwood's part. Not only – okay, we're back in Gilead, right? But not only do we get to see the main character, Agnes, talk about handmaids sort of from an outside point of view, but we get to see Gilead from a child's point of view, which I thought was a really smart thing on her part.
1: Yeah, and it was also interesting to hear like a child's perspective on – how oppressed women are in this society. Because yeah. obviously the child is not thinking of it. She's not thinking of it in terms of oppression. She's just like, oh yeah, girls lack the ability to do things that all the, the boys can do. I think they compare it to like, the cats don't have fingers to crochet. Yes. Um, and so she's like, yeah, boys have fingers in their brain and girls don't. And that's why girls can't do anything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she's not even thinking about it as terms of oppression. She's just like, that's the way it is. Yep. Yeah
0: and she butts heads sometimes with you know there's a scene where she wants to help the the marthas in the kitchen there she wants to help them make bread and they say no so even there's like a status thing to it too of like you know she she's she often worries about who her arranged marriage husband is going to be and she bemoans that she doesn't want him to be fat and everything but you know she very much is She's there to play a role, much like Alfred was there to play a role. And and we see women, you know, subjugated into these categories in this world. But seeing it from that child's point of view who doesn't know that it's oppression or or, you know, it's just the way the world is, I thought, yeah, I thought it was really smart and really interesting.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: And one thing that, that I really love that Margaret Atwood does in this world is she sort of blurs these lines with religion. Like clearly the the people in Gilead have this sort of warped version of religion and, and stay true to it. But I like the way that Margaret Atwood too plays with this idea. So there are the angels in this world and those are basically guys with guns
1: in mercenaries essentially. Right. Yeah.
0: And so this, this sort of perversion of like this little girl, when she thinks of angels, she doesn't think of angels in the traditional sense of coming down from heaven with the wings and harps. She thinks of these guys with guns and, I thought that she did a great job. This is where the her world building is really great to me. Of This is supposed to be in a society that's supposed to have a religion and is supposed to think of nothing but, you know, sort of that and your place and God and angels. The thing that she thinks of with angels is guys with guns. And I thought that, that's where she's great to me.
1: And not only that, but, like, they're not even... She doesn't even feel safe when she thinks of those angels. Yeah. Like, she thinks about the fact that, like, men can't control their... Urges their lust, so like you know, she's talking about the 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 like prayer, the like now I lay me down to sleep, and the angels around the bed. And she's like, but what if my feet are showing? They'll attack me. Right. So like these angels aren't even safe to her, and that's such like a complex idea that Margaret Atwood's putting together of like these men are safety, but they're also danger, and where does that leave women if you can't even trust what's supposed to keep you safe? Right. getting it all from this like little girl's perspective of just trying to like feel safe in the dark at night in her bed. Yep. You know?
0: Yeah. And so poor Agnes comes to learn that her mother is very sick. Some of the girls at school basically tell her that. And she says, you know, wow, how did you get that idea? And they're like, well, you know, our, our, the people in our kitchens talk about it and she goes to the, the people in her kitchen and she says, are they sick or is she sick? Is she, is she sick? And they say, yes, we, we thought you knew you hadn't figured it out. And of course, her mother ends up passing away, and Agnes is just absolutely crushed. It's it's very sad. But that ends her section. So then we go to the next section, which is another Aunt Lydia, and in this section, we, we again sort of we get a little bit more insight into her. Kind of discusses her feelings about how she attained these this power in the society, half because she believes, and half because she you know she kind of alludes to like you know she just did what she had to do to get there but here is where we see a, like a small crack in the idea that we had from the last book of who aunt lydia is but what did you think of these aunt sections compared to the other ones
1: so i she's kind of our our, our main giving like a handmaid's tale away <laughs> she's like our main kind of crossover currently yeah um And again, that's without giving anything away. She's, she's our main known crossover from book Handmaid's Tale to this book. Yeah. I think it is very interesting, the like cracks in her own beliefs that we're seeing, um, where she's like, I know that what I'm doing isn't right, but like I'm committed, you know, I'm committed to this and like, this is, I've been like canonized essentially for this, um, and that's, like, its own danger because, like, I'm a woman who's being praised and given power, and that puts me in, like, a tenuous spot in this society. But, you know, and then she's, like, rebelling because she's writing her history down. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. You can kind of see what might come later in the book from this because it's obviously someone who's devout, and yet if they were truly devout, they, she wouldn't be writing the story to begin right. with. Right,
0: right she is a good link back to that first book cause she's a character we recognize, but I felt compared to the other sections and I mean, her things are only a few pages, but I, I found the other two sections just much more entertaining from a reading standpoint. Cause there's a lot more going on. So I don't, I don't know if I would structure it differently because I do think we need that like link back, but I like I guess I like the other two characters a little more, too. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Oh, I 100% agree. I think um, the other two characters are much more interesting to read about. Um, And there's also something about her sections that is a little stilted. Um, I think it's partly because it is like a diary entry. And I think that the other part of it is that... I don't know. I think that she just isn't as well developed yet. We don't like learn enough about her. It's like mostly focused on the statue and stuff like that. Uh, We don't really get a lot of insight into Lydia yet um or like her past or like how she ended up where she is right and get a lot of backstory on the other two characters yeah. in her first the
0: the very first sentence of the book and emma alluded to the statue there the first sentence of the book is aunt lydia writing only dead people are allowed to have statues but i have been given one while still alive already i am petrified yeah, it is very focused on that. I think that Margaret Atwood is very good at cliffhangers and and just the way that she structured *Handmaid's Tale* for these little moments happening that made you want to keep reading. There wasn't a lot of like those sorts of little little bombs dropped in the Aunt Lydia sections or little cliffhangers that are like, "Wait, what's happening with her?" It does sort of feel like this is a thing I am saying and I am doing it, and good night. Yeah. So.
1: And I think Margaret Atwood is really adept. At weaving together narratives, yes. Um, one of her like greatest talents as a writer, I think, is bringing together characters that you don't see how they can be connected and weaving them into a pretty flawless, cohesive narrative. Yeah. Um, but like, I trust her to kind of get us there with these three really different characters, um, and to like put them all together in a way that tells a complete story uh, in the end. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So from that section, we move on to chapter seven, which introduces us to a new character, Daisy, who lives in Toronto. So this is, again, I thought was really interesting. If you're gonna bring us back to this world, when she puts us in the world, she gives it to us from a child's point of view. And then the next character lives outside of Gilead, which is super interesting to see how the rest of the world, or at least how Canada and how Toronto views this part of the world. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really, really smart. Uh, Daisy lives with her parents, Neil and Melanie, who own a secondhand clothing store. And, you know, when she's young, she enjoys living in the store. And as she gets older, she kind of butts heads with her parents a little bit, who are a little strict, but you can, they, they seem like very nice people. They're never mean or anything, but they are. So they, they always seem a little worried uh, that she's going to get into trouble. Um, and uh, Emma mentioned earlier, the Pearl Girls, there's a scene where she admonishes her mother for being nice to these these pearl girls who are basically missionaries from Gilead who you know come into their store and try to spread the word and the polarizing character in all this is baby nicole who is a baby who somehow got out of gilead and was smuggled into canada and the gilead government is saying to the canadian government i mean and this has been going on for years at this point in time in the book you know, the Canadian government is saying, we don't really want to give her back or have any interest in finding her. You're crazy people. And the Gilead government is saying, what's wrong with you? And, you know, the Canadian government was going to, and then people kind of give us some backlash to it. So there's this whole thing. And of course, a lot of the propaganda that the Pearl girls spread is around baby Nicole and saving her. And yeah, Daisy gets so mad at her mom for, for even talking to them. She's like, they're crazy. They're weirdos. And her mom basically says, you know, if you just leave them alone. They'll just go away. Like, best not to antagonize them.
1: Yeah. Like, the, her parents are very obsessed with, like, keeping her safe, keeping her away from things. They're cautious about exposing her to media or, like, out in the media. They don't photograph her. There's, like, a whole section where she talks about how everyone's got all of these photos of their childhood and she has nothing. Yep. Um, so, like, you get the sense that there is something else
0: happening going on yeah that and,
1: parents are keeping from her also she says
0: blatantly like I found out something right I have. <laughs> right 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 I, I always think that's interesting. I've touched on that a lot in the podcast. And and of course, the way Margaret Atwood structures these books, again, of somebody looking back and telling you something, is it just a nice way to keep the reader reading of like, you know, I would come to in, in the first section with Agnes. She's like, uh, you know, you guess you might guess what's coming next. And yes, my mother died. Like, it's very much <laughs> like, oh, right. You know, we can see where this is going. So, yeah, she keeps hinting to I later found out that something crazy was this or I shouldn't have done this. And, you know, you might see this and whatever. So the this as we get to the end of the first fifty pages, uh, we see Daisy really wants to go to this protest that is part of her school. It's not organized by her school, but her school is sending people to protest Gilead, uh, and and you know there's all kinds of signs that they're making about you know Baby Daisy and and Gilead itself. I'm trying to remember some of the signs. It's like for Gilly
1: bad. Yeah. Uh, which I loved. That was my favorite. Climate Science, Delire, Gilead wants us to, to fry. Like, they're just very, they're very stereotypical, like, protest signs. Like, right. Like, you know, like, ones we see now all the time. Right. Like, they're protest every minute now. Yeah. And
0: so she really wants to go to this and her parents say, no, 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 absolutely not. We don't want you to go. But we see Daisy, she sort of swap what is it? she swaps ids with one of the girls on her soccer team and just kind of slips onto the buses you know her parents have told her teacher she's not allowed to go but you know she gets a teacher that doesn't know her and shows her a different id and the name checks out and actually that's where page 50 ends is daisy from the future telling us this is where it all kind of went to shit and it started with me sneaking onto that bus and yep. that's where we end off on there and that's it that's 50 pages. Which is a great cliffhanger. but So we're at the end of these first 50 pages. After your trepidation and everything, Emma, how are you feeling about those?
1: Uh, it's so hard because, undeniably, Margaret Atwood can write a book. Yes. You know, I cannot fall for prose. Like, she is a great writer, and she writes great characters. So do I want to read the book based on, like, those 50 pages? Yes, I do. Because I think she... Is really creating some compelling stories, but like, I don't want this book. Yeah,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't want it. Um, you know, I don't want it. But again, if I'm looking at it purely from like, is the book engaging? Does it tell a story that I want to hear? It absolutely does. Yeah. In my
0: Do you? You mentioned earlier the th- that you really love the way she weaves different um characters together and this one she's writing from three different points of view whereas Handmaid's Tale until that very last chapter it's all from Offred's point of view do you do you like that more in this book that we're jumping around or I felt so at least one of the things I liked about uh, Handmaid's Tale was that I felt very anchored and very grounded in the world because it was just one narrator telling me what was going on So actually at some point, you know, when it got to chapter seven and we're on our third character and only because it was, if I, if, if this was a a book on its own, I don't think this would have bothered me, but because I'd read Handman's Tale, I was like, okay, this jumping around is actually, I don't know how I feel about this, but was that a, a part of the book that you really liked?
1: So I had some initial problems with it and this is a very specific one, but I find that it is really hard to switch between narrators when you are using first person. Yes. Um, so if it wasn't for those little pictures that mark the chapter right. changes, I wouldn't have picked up that they were different characters initially because yeah. when you're writing in first person, everyone's just referring to themselves as I, yeah. uh, until so, so we get a name, it's really hard to distinguish the voices. Yes. Uh, so that was one of the kind of, uh, this wasn't like perfect because yeah, it just was really hard to to tell the voices apart initially. And I imagine as we get deeper, we'll kind of make them more distinct. Yeah. But right now, because it's in first person, it's just a little muddied, I would say. Yeah.
0: So overall, would you would you delve in, would you keep reading, or would you shelve it? Oh God. I
1: I probably will read it. I'll probably read the book. Uh (laughs) again, my inclination to shelve it is not from a it's a bad book perspective. It's from a, a I don't need more to this world. But, like, if you are a fan, if you hated the ending of Handmaid's Tale and you need to know, absolutely read this book. I think it's going to be great. I-, I put a lot of credit to the Booker Prize. I read the books every year that win and that are on the short list. It would not have gotten there, in my opinion, if it didn't deserve it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think if you want to know the rest of the story, read this book.
0: Yeah. My... I'm going to I'm going to take your trepidation and, and go with it. I'm I would shelve this because I I liked the cliffhangers in this. I liked the way she structured it, but I I did find myself not really wanting to go back to Gilead and I liked seeing it from outside perspectives, but there was something about just Offred giving us that narration, you know, just from her. And honestly, the one thing I didn't know about Handmaid's Tale before I started reading it was that the main character experienced life regularly and then this sort of revolution happened and everything changed. And I think that's what was so difficult for me. That's what is sometimes difficult for me about, you know, post-apocalyptic books or worlds. And I, I like them sometimes. There are some that I really like and there are others that I don't. And I think the strength of those is when you kind of go back and sort of show how the world changed. One of my absolute favorites, which I, I think you've read is, is um oh my God, I say that. Station eleven.
1: Oh yeah 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 amazing Forget book
0: that. amazing I love that book and she does a great job of going back and forth. Yeah. Um and, and so that's yeah. that's what made I mean um, among many of the other things that's that's one of the things that made Handmaid's Tale uncomfortable with me was to see sort of the way that society kind of broke down and for her as a young woman, just simple things like going to work, she's not able to do that. I mean, that was scary to think about the, the women in my life all of a sudden one day waking up and somebody saying, no, you can't go to work. Women aren't allowed to work anymore. It's just that that's what was uncomfortable and made me want to put it down, but I'm glad that I finished it because it was really interesting to see her world and to get her point of view here, this, to me, the, the testaments, you know, with all the other stuff I'm really interested in reading this year and everything, I, I just, I feel like if I find out too much about what happened to Offred, it will take a piece of The Handmaid's Tale away from me. It's, that's a big
1: thing with me. That's why I won't watch the show. Yeah. Again, when I read this as a young woman, um, when I was just growing up and reading this book, you're, just what you were saying, like, knowing that, like, she goes from the world as we know it to this new reality, and it's so quick. Yeah. It holds so quickly. Yeah. And so, for me, so much of what Margaret Atwood was talking about is what we allow as a society to happen in forms of systematic oppression. Yeah. Um, not just of women, but of different sexualities yeah. and race and all of those things like what we allow as a society that's going to take hold and grow and it's going to become this, and it's going to become this quicker than we can stop it. Yeah. So I think when I was young and reading this, I was like just blown away by someone suggesting that this not only is possible, but like society has already built these structures into it. It's not going to take much for us to get here, which goes back to our whole point about this is not science fiction to me this is, like, an alternate history, yeah. you know? Yeah, Yeah. knowing too much about Arthur kind of diminishes that whole impact of the book. Um, and it's just hard. It's just really hard because I love her, and I want to read it, but I don't want to
0: read it. Yeah, I and I totally agree with you. I read this, and the choices she makes and how to structure the book and her writing. I, I actually, when you said that thing about the cats having fingers to make a cat's cradle or whatever or, or crochet... I For thought that. that was, yeah, I th- like there were so many really great lines and just prose and you, I mean, you pick up the book and you read a paragraph and you know that she's a great writer and it really is, but I would rather read a different Margaret Atwood book and enter yeah. a new world than continue with the Testament. And it would be one thing to me if she said, listen, I've given this a lot of thought and I really want to write the next part to it. But because it seems so tied to the show and wanting to to keep going with that, Just, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to shelve this, but like Emma said, not because of any big, not because these first 50 pages were bad, not because there's not some good cliffhangers in here, but because I think I'll just, I think I I like living with the uncertainty of of Offred and her story. Yeah. I I Um, like that. And then I have to say, like, if your listeners
1: out there, like, want to read more Margaret Atwood and they want to read something that kind of resonates with society right now. I can't recommend more picking up the Mad Adam trilogy. Oryx um, and Crake is an incredible book, as are the two sequels. I believe they're making them into movies. It's not think people are interested in. They're making the three books into movies. They're not extending it. Thank God. Nice.
0: <laughs>
1: um, incredible trilogy. It really speaks to a lot of what's happening now. She's a very... She's, very good writer at predicting what we're, as a society, going to struggle against in yep. the future. Yep. So, out and read those, I guess. If you yeah. want to read more Margaret Atwood, Great. Um, I think that's they're pretty
0: amazing. Yeah. I've always wanted to read the, the Penelope ad because I'd like retellings of myths. That's always been sort of high on my list of things to read. So, I might pick that one up next. I'm glad to hear that you said Hagseed was good because... A lot of those Hogarth Shakespeare retellings, too. I love that kind of stuff. But a lot of them didn't seem like they were going to be... I just don't feel like people did a lot of fun stuff with them. And I, I had sort of heard that hers was the best of them.
1: I, I think it was. I think... I will admit... I think she took a slightly, like, easy road because she set the Tempest in a prison. Right. Um, which... Very cool, but, like, that's definitely – I've seen that stage production. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, but
0: it also worked really well. So I yeah. had a lot of fun. So the next questions I have for you then are Are this. Who in your life would you give this book to as your cat attacks you? <laughs> I'm a cat now. Um, I'm going to give this book to Ghost with my cat. Um, yeah. I would give this book to – I mean, it could be somebody specific or just you know, or general, but who would you recommend this to? I'm going to go very specific. I have a friend,
1: Hannah, who loves the show and really wants to know what happened to Alfred. I tell her, pick up the Testament. You'll know in the first 50 pages
0: what we can Has she read uh, the book? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So, I mean, I, I, I agree. I haven't watched the show, but it seems to me that if you're a fan of the show— Obviously, read *Handmaid's Tale* because you should always read the thing that the the show is based on, in my opinion. But yeah, if you're a fan of the show, I think pick this up. I think that *Handmaid's Tale* and this are sort of a good book for people. You know, if you're if you're if you're like a literary fiction reader and that's the kind of stuff you like, but you want to maybe try getting out of something. I, I I like like speculative fiction or that kind of stuff. I mean, that's my wheelhouse. In in general, the things I like to read is like character is living in the real world and then something really weird happens and that's where we go. I'm not a huge lover of of, you know, big science fiction worlds or even big fantasy things. I really like, you know, guy lives in world where vampires and ghosts and mummies just exist anyway and <laughs> here we go. Yeah. So, if I, you're a, if you're a literary person maybe wanting to branch out, definitely check out Handmaid's Tale and check this out. And I will say though
1: that I don't think I think that if you read this book without having read Handmaid's Tale, you're going to have some problems. <laughs> um, I don't think you're going to get as much out of it. I don't think this book can be picked up on its own. Yes.
0: Have to there there would be some confusing stuff. So I'm really glad that I read Handmaid's Tale before reading this because just knowing some of the terminology that exists in the, the society of Gilead, like ants or Marthas or angels, as, as Emma and I discussed earlier, it's good to, to know what they're talking about. The impact is so much greater you know it's hard to, to play catch up the other thing i like oh no go she ahead it as a sequel, so like she doesn't
1: world build out the way she did in Handmaid's Tale. she jumps right into it you're right in the middle of the world yeah
0: she doesn't even yeah she doesn't give you like a quick history of gilead or anything you know yeah exactly she just jumps right in the other thing i like to ask people is we do the thing at the store the blind date with a book where we wrap the book up and we give the three recommendations of like if you liked this, then, you know, if you like these three things, then you're gonna like the book inside. So are there a couple things that you could recommend? Like if you like the Testament or, you know, if you like these books, then you'll like the Testaments. Ooh,
1: good question. Let's see. I'm like looking at my wall. (laughs) Nice. Um, Well, actually, weirdly, I think you said one, I think Station Eleven is a really good one to put on there. I would say that. Um looking at some of my speculative fiction. But <laughs> uh, oh, there is, there's this one very small book. Mm, it's not here. <laughs> okay, I would do Her Body and Other Parties by oh, Maria Machado. Yeah. I would do Station Eleven, um, and then I would say what well, would be my third one that I would put on there. Um Oh, maybe the Mars Room by Rachel Kushner. Oh yeah. That on there. Yeah. It has like it's not the same like genre to me, but it has the same like discussion of like contemporary issues and and stuff like that. Yeah. But, yeah. Those I'm are like, good picks.
0: Nice. I would I would go with Station Eleven too. It's funny because we use Handmaid's Tale a lot in the Blind Date with a Book uh, picks because it's a good way of saying you know this is either something that's maybe post apocalyptic or you know, a, a very different world. So I would say Station Eleven too. I would I would throw the, the like, big curveball thing as well and maybe even say something like um, Jhumpa Lahiri or uh, Alice Munro, who those are very, you know, there's no sort of speculative or science fiction in there, but they are stories, usually stories about strong female characters. And, you know, Alice Munro in particular, a lot of her short stories – there's a lot of kind of like looking back, this is, you know, how I felt. And so there's that, there's almost that like, kind of like, you know, I, I was growing up and I can kind of look back and see, um, I, I love her short stories. They're so good. I didn't know. Oh,
1: I love short stories. That's why I included her body at other parties. Um, That's
0: a really good one.
1: Right. That's the same reason. It's like about that, that collection of short stories is very much about the horror of living in a female body. Yes. Um, and I think that ties in a lot to what's going on in the world Margaret Atwood is creating in both uh, Handmaid's Tale
0: and Testament. So. Absolutely. And actually, I might even throw, I've only really read Ursula Le Guin's, I've read some short stories from her, but there is something about the the, the sharpness of her writing and the way she structures things that, that Margaret Atwood kind of reminded me of. So.
1: Mm, I I can totally see that. Yeah, I, I, I think you could put Left Hand of Darkness on there. Yeah. And uh, people would know what was up.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, Emma, thank you so much for coming on and for, for talking Testaments. Is there anything that you want to promote or shout out or anything? Oh,
1: gosh. No. I'm just in grad school. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get by i don't have anything to promote that
0: just takes up all my time <laughs> <laughs> um what kind of what kind of theater productions have you worked on so far this semester um well fsu
1: is really known for musical theater yep. so we just wrapped chicago um which was great nice the students incredibly talented um we're about to start in the height
0: oh nice
1: many people will know um because of Lin Manuel Miranda, yep. uh, and then we also just did The Imprints of Being Earnest, and uh, uh, I love the show because I can talk Oscar Wilde till the cows come home. That's
0: a great show. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, Risa and I went uh, for her birthday. I took us to see Freestyle Love Supreme, mm. which is the it's it's like a it's like a long form improv that Lin-Manuel Miranda and a few other people started and now it's on Broadway and so every night there's a different special guest and I got the tickets for a pretty good price and you know Reese and I we were looking ahead at some shows and there's a lot of shows that are like already really expensive and so Lin-Manuel Miranda is one of the special guests and we were like you know he's probably not coming to ours because it's we have fairly inexpensive tickets no he was yes. a special guest it was great so they just they like freestyle rap everything uh, if you're listening out there and you don't know and I, I have never seen a theater freak out like that when he came there were people standing up cheering when he came on stage it was crazy
1: he's having a moment
0: yeah right?
1: <laughs> i mean speaking of philip pullman he's in the golden
0: compass show right yes, now. yes that's right
1: know, um which i
0: still have to check out i really want to So, well, I'm, I'm just uh, like delighted that you had some time in your busy grad school schedule to, to do this and to talk this book. I had forgotten, honestly, I'd forgotten how much you love Handmaid's Tale. So I'm really happy that you came on and I had somebody who, you know, had (laughs) read it.
1: I I can't pick a number one book, but it's in the
0: top five. If you haven't read it, people Go read it. It's so good. oh man thank you so much emma uh i really appreciate it so it was was a delve in for emma because she can't resist margaret atwood and it's a shelf for me but um i'm i the next time i see you i will probably ask you what happens because i'll just you know i want to know but uh, i don't know if i want to know i'm sure we'll talk over thanksgiving yes definitely we will definitely facetime you guys for sure so all right well thank you emma and thank you everyone for listening I sincerely hope you enjoyed this episode of Furthermore. Hey, did you know you can find us on Instagram? That's our best social media site, Furthermore Podcast, all one word. We post updates on the Instagram, cool pictures, lots of book stuff. Check us out there. All the artwork for Furthermore is done by Max Farinato, who you can find at maxfarinto.com or on Instagram at cbartist underscore. Hey, if you haven't told a friend about Furthermore yet, please do tell your mom, tell your dad. Tell your dad to tell your mom if you've told your dad already. Listen, just tell somebody about Furthermore. It's a great way for podcasts to grow. And if you know somebody that likes books or just needs a new podcast to get them through the upcoming holiday break, Furthermore is a great one to tell them about. Looking back through my book notes, it looks like my favorite book in September was a book called The Last Days of Magic by Mark Tompkins. This is one I've had on my to-read list for forever. It actually came out back in 2015. And actually, I think Mark stopped into the bookstore years ago and gave me a pretty cool little piece of promo art for it. The idea behind this book is that magic is waning in Ireland and the rest of the world, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, is coming to Ireland to take all the magic for themselves. It was a really wide sweeping narrative with a lot of different characters and a lot of different locations. And very well done. Commendable Mark Tompkins. It was quite the ride. This was probably one of the more heavy fantasy things I've read in a long time and I did enjoy it. I just want to say thank you to Emma for coming on to talk about Handmaid's Tale and talk about the Testaments. Let me know what you thought of this. Have you watched the show? Did you like that? Did you want to return to Gilead and see more? How does the book stack up against the show? Maybe, furthermore, we'll do a head to head on Handmaid's Tale someday. You never know. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Furthermore. If you ever need a book recommendation, please reach out to me. It's what I do. Thanks for listening. This is Andy, and hey, keep reading. If we were Accident, I'll swear you to the stars. Regression's just a point on a line we call a scar. I made a vow to carry the world, but I carry.